may be seated. Amen. Well, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. We finally make our return back to the Gospel of John. We've been studying the Gospel of John for some time now, and we took a little bit of a break over the summer, and we studied the parables of our Lord, and then we did a little uh, two-week series on pride and humility these last two weeks. But here we are back in John. We'll be here for a couple weeks, and then we're going to take the whole month of October to really focus our attention on the Reformation. Uh, It's a five um, Sunday month, and there are five solas of the Reformation, so we figured we'll take one per Sunday, really dive in deep uh, to studying how God used that period of time to really change all of human history and change the course of the church. We would not be doing what we are doing right now if it was not for what happened um, during the Protestant Reformation. So we want to highlight that as it is the 500th year anniversary of Uh, Martin Luther being used by God to begin um, what we know as the Protestant Reformation. But for the next couple weeks, we are going to look at John 15, and I I want to spend our time in verses 1 through 11. John 15, 1 through 11. We are still in what we call the Upper Room Discourse. That's chapters 13 through 17. It all takes place on one night, Thursday night of the Passion Week. So John gives us five full chapters on just one night, a very, very important night. Jesus is preparing his disciples. He has told them that somebody is going to betray him. He has told them that somebody is going to deny him. He's told them that he is going to leave and where he is going, they cannot follow currently, but they will follow him later at a time when he comes to get them. He is preparing them and making sure that they are ready and equipped so that when he does leave, they can continue his ministry. So really, we can sum it up with three things thus far that we've seen in the Upper Room Discourse. Jesus is telling his disciples, number one, he is going away. Number two, they cannot come with him. And number three, it is now their task to continue his ministry. But the question that they're asking now is, how do we continue the ministry that you are doing when you are gone? How do we do that? He's going to answer by saying there are many relationships that you now have, a relationship with me that's changing, but I will be in you and you will be in me and you will continue the ministry that I have been doing. Relationships with each other, relationship with the world, relationship with the Spirit, relationships are how this is going to continue to work, how you will minister by the power of, uh, by the, power of the Holy Spirit as He is sent and continues to work in and through you. And if you go back to chapter 14, verse 31, the very last phrase in that verse is, let us go from here. Get up, let's go from here. So they were in the upper room, and then they got up after finishing the Passover Seder, and now they have left. They are walking down the Kidron Valley across to the Garden of Gethsemane. Josephus tells us that that road where they would have gone, we know where the upper room probably was. There's a location that we think that was probably where the upper room was, and and that's on the, the southeastern uh, side of the, uh, the southwest corner of the temple. And so you'd have, to, you'd have to go along the Temple Mount. And Josephus tells us as you're walking along the Temple Mount to go down the Kidron Valley to go over to the Garden of Gethsemane that there were grapevines that would have been thrown over the side of the Temple Wall, the Temple Mount. And probably somewhere as Jesus is walking with his disciples, trying to encourage them with how this relationship is going to work, He says, he stops, he probably stops and looks at these these grapevines and says, I am the true vine. Do you see what's happening here? 
our relationship will be like that. Whether he stops or whether he continues to, to, to walk as he is speaking, he speaks these words in John 15, verse 1. I am the true vine. My Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples." Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. All these things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Father, we ask your blessing on our time. These are rich words. We are on holy ground as we walk with Jesus, as He's walking to the Garden of Gethsemane. And we get to eavesdrop on His conversation with His disciples, which was meant for them, but now we get to see the principles that are meant for us. God, I pray that You would work in us a holy discontent. how quick we are to judge our hearts and to judge our external growth and to say, I'm doing okay. I've arrived to a certain degree and I have things under control and I'm happy with where, I, where I'm at. God, I pray that we would never become complacent, lazy, satisfied with our own fruit-bearing. You're so clear in these verses. Your goal for us is not a little bit of fruit, but abounding, abundant fruit. So God, give us your own heart for our own good works today. Give us a desire, a truly insatiable desire to bear fruit that would be so abundant and a manifold expression clearly of the work that you are doing in us, that others would see and glorify you. Teach us now, Holy Spirit, open our eyes, give us the gift of illumination that we would behold wonderful things from your law this morning. We pray in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Verse 8, Jesus says, my Father is glorified by this that you bear much fruit. You bear much fruit. The question before us that I believe that this passage is answering is how do we grow in our fruit-bearing abilities? How do we grow in our abundance of fruit-bearing? 
fruit bearing is described five times explicitly, one other time if you mention, if you use an implication that's there in the text. So six times fruit bearing is discussed in these 11 verses. This passage is all about spiritual productivity. And if we're going to use those terms, what Jesus is saying is we want to be highly productive in our abundant output of fruit. That's what Jesus says. Verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. It's not about bearing fruit. It's about bearing abundant fruit, more fruit. Verse 5, I'm the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. It's not just he bears fruit. There's a lot of fruit that's growing. In verse 8, my Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit. So God is not satisfied with us bearing fruit. God desires that we would bear much fruit. And so I want us to desire to bear much fruit. The question is, how is that possible? How do we bear much fruit? How do we grow in our fruit-bearing capacities? How do we do that? I believe that these 11 verses answer this fundamental question. What are the essential ingredients that ensure a greater fruitfulness? What are the essential ingredients that ensure a greater fruitfulness, a greater growth of abundant fruitfulness. We don't want to slow down. We don't want to give up. We don't want to regress for sure, but we want to grow in abundant fruitfulness. So what are the essential ingredients that would ensure abundant fruitfulness? I believe this text gives us three ingredients. We're going to take one this morning and then two next week. Let me give you the three ingredients that I believe these verses tell us. This is how we grow in our abundance of bearing fruit. Number one, we first have to identify the source of abundantly bearing fruit. If we're going to abundantly bear fruit, we've got to figure out what the source is. Number two, we have to embrace the means. So we have to identify the source. We have to embrace the means. And number three, then we have to live out our responsibility, our role in fruit bearing. So we have to figure out what is the source of the fruit? What is the means of fruit bearing? And what is our role in this whole process? So as I said, we're going to just look at the first one this morning. What is the source of our abundant fruitfulness? We'll look at the means of our abundant fruitfulness next week along with our role in abundantly producing fruit. So verse 1, Jesus begins a parable of sorts. It's an extended metaphor. It's an illustration. He says he's the true vine. That's clearly Jesus. He says his father is the vine dresser, and then there's branches. And these are people who profess faith in Christ. They are somehow alongside Jesus. Some are true in their professions, some are not. But Jesus starts by saying, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. I am. This is the last of the seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. Thus far, he has said, I am the bread of life, telling us that he is the only one who can spiritually sustain and satisfy us. He told us that he is the light of the world. Uh, He is the one by which we would gain illumination, spiritual understanding, wisdom, and, and principles for living life spiritually that would please him. He has told us that he is the door of the sheep. He explains to us that he has given us free and unlimited access to God. 
And he told us that he is the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd, which is him saying that he gives us that unlimited access by his own death. He lays down his life for the sheep. He has said that he is the resurrection and the life, which explains he's the only one that will give us a guarantee of eternal life when we die. He's told us he is the way, the truth, and the life, which tells us he's the only way to get that eternal life. And here, his last I am statement is, I am the true vine. He is the only source of spiritual fruitfulness. He's the only source. I am the true vine. If we're asking ourselves this morning, and I believe we should based on these verses, what are the the necessary ingredients, the essential ingredients that would ensure a greater abundance of bearing fruit, we have to first identify the source, and Jesus says, I am that source. I am the true vine. I am. He calls himself the true vine, not just the vine. He calls himself the true vine, as opposed to the false vine or other lesser vines that aren't truly vines. But what does he mean by that? The vine was Israel's national symbol. Even today, you can see coins with the imprint of a vine on them. It was their national symbol. Vines hung over the temple walls. Vines are all over the place as a sign, a national symbol. Why is that? Because there's dozens of passages in the Old Testament where God refers to Israel as his own vine. Israel was the vine but they conspicuously did not bear fruit. They are the vine, but they are a fruitless vine. God refers to them as unfruitful. God refers to them as rotten. God refers to them as dead, as not producing anything. In the Old Testament, God's chosen people were described as this vine, but they were always described as a fruitless vine, not producing, not doing what God told them to do. And if the fruit is always rotten... Or if there is no fruit, and you can trace back to the root and realize the whole tree itself, the whole vine, the whole plant is rotten. Israel's fruitlessness proved that Israel was dead on the inside. We know this even for ourselves, right? We, we say a lot, um, you're not a sinner because you sin. You sin because the root is a sinful heart. You sin because you are a sinner. We sin because the sin's already there inside of us. The well is poisonous, therefore it comes out and it kills everything. So too, Israel was supposed to be a vine that would bring life, and instead they were a vine that brought nothing but death, a lack of fruit, rotten fruit that would kill, or a lack of fruit that there wasn't even fruit on the vine at all. So Jesus says, I am the true vine. I am doing what Israel was supposed to do, but they failed to do, and they never really could do on their own. Where Israel failed, Jesus is saying, I will succeed. And he has said that all throughout this gospel thus far. Chapter 1, he has told us that he is the true tabernacle that houses the glory of God. Remember, he makes his dwelling with us. He is the tabernacle of God. Chapter 1, he is the, la- the ladder of Jacob, which gives us access to heaven. Chapter 2, he is the, the temple in the last days. He is where we can finally worship God because he is God. Chapter 3, he is the, 
serpent that was lifted up in the wilderness. Remember the bronze serpent Moses lifted up? So too the Son of Man will be lifted up. Where Israel failed, I will succeed. He's the fulfillment of all holy locations. Chapter 4, your fathers worshipped on that mountain. We worship over here on this mountain. Where are we supposed to worship? And he said, I tell you the truth, the day is coming where we don't worship at a location, but in spirit and in truth, because the Son of Man is here. He is God's true Son, chapter 5. He is the manna, the greater manna that gives life, the bread of life. He is the fulfillment of all Jewish feasts, chapter 7 and 8. And on and on and on it goes. John is telling us that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything Israel was supposed to be, but they failed to be. And so Jesus says, I am the true vine. This, this brings immense comfort to my soul because what I am supposed to be and what I fail to be, Jesus is saying, I will succeed in your place. I will succeed in your place. And you can trust my success instead of just staring at your own failures. Why can he accomplish what Israel failed to do, what they could never do? Because he's God. He's God. He's the true vine, and he has a father, and his father is God, and his father is the vine dresser. He is the only source of a greater spiritual productivity. Notice he says, every branch in me, verse 2, that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. And we're going to look at that in greater detail next week because that's the means of bearing fruit. But then he says this in verse 4, abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. Jesus tells us, I am, I am the true vine, and I am the only source of you growing spiritual fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You cannot bear fruit on your own. And so Jesus says, you need to connect to the source. The source is me. Notice the sufficiency of the vine. In and of themselves, branches have no life, but stuck to the vine, branches can produce. So, I want greater fruitfulness for my own life. I'm not content with my tiny little lemons that pop out every once in a while. Here's some fruit, boom, 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 that's it. I want a lush tree that's growing with so much fruit. I want to abound in fruitfulness. And I know that you do too. This passage tells us that when people grow fruit, others around you will see the fruit and will say, there's no way that you produce that. There's no way that you produce that. Something else produced that. And we can say, yes, God produced that. Don't, don't you want to grow fruit that is so countercultural to humanity that people say, why are you doing that? That makes no sense. I know you, and you don't act like that. And you say, yeah, Jesus acts like that, and his life is being lived out through me. And they'll glorify your Father. That's what we want. But this raises several questions about this fruit that we need to answer this morning. Because if we're staring at, I want more fruit, we have to ask, what is it? Why do we want it? And how do we get it? So three questions that we'll answer from these verses this morning. What is this fruit? Why do I want this fruit? How do I get this fruit? We know the source is Jesus. He alone is the source. So we need to be stuck in him. But why do we want it? What is it? What is it? He expects us to bear fruit. Again, six times in this passage, he tells us we should be bearing fruit, and not just bearing fruit, but bearing much fruit. So what is it? What is this fruit? 
Well, we know in verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So we know that this fruit is a consequence of us praying in Christ's name. We also know that it brings about the glory of God. Verse 8, my Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit. So we know what it does, but what is it intrinsically? What is it intrinsically? Here's the definition that I would give to what this fruit truly is intrinsically. This fruit is the reproduction of the life of the vine in the branch. It's the reproduction of the life of the vine into the branches. If the branches have life, it means that there was life in the vine that was given to them. And if the branches have fruit, it means that the life of the vine was given to the branches to produce the fruit. This fruit is the identifier that we belong to Christ. It's evidence that we are in the vine. It's evidence that we are alive in Christ. Like Ephesians says, if we are not in Christ and we're not bearing fruit, then we are dead in sin and we're not alive in Christ. To be a Christian, verse 2, is to bear fruit. If we don't bear fruit, we're taken away. But if we do bear fruit, then we are truly connected to the vine. If there is no fruit, there's no genuine belief. So another way we could define this is these are qualities that the vine has, this fruit, these fruits that we see are qualities that the vine has that are lived out through the branches. These are qualities that reflect the nature of the vine. If you grow lemons, you know that you are attached to a lemon tree. If you grow spiritual fruit, you know that you're attached to Christ. Just look at the, the qualities that are reflected in the upper room. The kindness of Jesus to serve others, to wash his disciples' feet, to take care of them, to be so others-focused. What does this fruit look like? It, it looks like verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Obedience to Christ's commands clearly, clearly demonstrates we're attached to the vine. It looks like joy, verse 11, these things I have spoken to you that you might have my joy. It might be in you and that your joy may be made full. How can Jesus' joy be our joy? Only by being connected to him, by being in him. Verse 12, love for others. Verse 16, going and bearing fruit by being a gospel witness. The bottom line is this fruit clearly is the reproduction of the life of the vine in the branch. It's Jesus' life being lived out through us. It's Jesus' qualities being lived out through us. And since Jesus personifies everything that we're trying to see, if we're attached to him, then we'll pr produce those things as well. Look at Galatians 5 with the fruit of the Spirit. Those are all things that are only possible through Jesus being the source and the life in the branches. In Galatians chapter 5, we see the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The fruit of the Spirit. That word fruit is singular. It's not plural. These are the many fruits of the Spirit. It's the fruit. Because if you are attached to Christ, His life is going to be lived out through you. And all of those uh, aspects of the fruit of the Spirit will grow out in some fashion. They're symmetrical. They grow symmetrically. If you lack patience, you're probably not the most loving person. If you lack love, you probably don't have too much joy. If you lack kindness, you probably aren't very good to other people. So they grow together because it's attached to the life of Jesus and his life is lived out through you. Now, the reason why I want to take some time to talk about what this fruit is is because how you define this fruit matters. 
Some people hear fruit is good works. Fruit is ethical behavior. And if you define it morally, if you define it religiously, then you will be tempted to become a Pharisee. You'll just look at externals. We have to look at what Jesus says this fruit is. And he says, it's my life being lived through you and being showing itself, being exemplified in the way that you bear fruit. It's love for Christ, attachment to him that produces love for others. It's evidence that you are in Christ. So the goal should not be, I want to do more good works for God. The goal should be, I want to make sure that I am in Christ, because if I'm in Christ, I can't help but produce those works. They will happen. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. We do the walking in them, but we can only walk in them because he has produced them in us. It's not us producing good works. Jesus says this in Matthew 12, verse 23, a tree is known by its fruit. If it bears a certain fruit, you know it's a certain kind of tree. A good tree can't bear bad fruit. A bad tree can't bear good fruit. And so, too, coupling that with John 15, if you abide in Christ, you can't help but bear the good fruit. And if you are not bearing good fruit, then it's proof that you're not attached to Christ. So we need to ask this question of ourselves. Are these things, the fruit that we see, evidence, the reproduction of the life of the vine in the life of the branches? Is that present in your life? Is that present? Now, I'm not asking, is that perfect in your life? Just, is it present? Do you see fruit that is impossible apart from Jesus' life flowing through you? To whom or to what are you connected? Everybody's connected to something. This is like the last parable that we looked at in the summer. Everybody's building. It's just, who are you building on? What are you building on? Everybody's attached to something. It's just, to whom or to what are you attached? So, What is this fruit? It's Jesus' own life being lived out through the branches. It's the reproduction of the life of the vine in the life of the branches. Why do we want it? Question number two, why do we want this fruit? We know what it is. Why do we want it? Jesus gives us five reasons. He gives us five reasons why we would want to have this fruit. The first one is, verse 8, my Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit. My Father is glorified. Again, I, I, I know that everybody in this room would want desperately to hear people say, that's not typical of what you do. Fleshly, earthly, human Patrick doesn't do that. That's something spiritual. That was an attitude, that was a response, that was a, a tone, that, that was something that was supernatural because natural Patrick would never have responded that way. I, I want that constantly in my life, that people say, that was God. God did that through you, and God wants that for us, and that's a motive. Don't you want to glorify God? Then you must bear fruit. A second reason is to prove that we're disciples of Jesus. So number one, we want to glorify God. Number two, we want to prove that we're disciples of Jesus. This is the end of verse eight. My father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Sometimes we, we kind of wiggle around this issue a little bit, but let's just be clear. Obedience to Jesus's teaching is the best indicator of your salvation. It is. Obedience to Jesus's teaching is the best indicator of your salvation. 
Now, there's a danger that comes along with that statement. And you know the danger, and that's why we try to wiggle around that statement. Because then people will think, well, then I just need to do better. I just need to try harder. I just need to obey. I just need to have things that happen. I just need to fix the fruit problem in my life, and then I'll prove to be saved. No, your works don't get you saved, but your works are the greatest indication that you are saved. Your works naturally flow from the grace that God has given to you. Here in these verses, Jesus does not recognize a professing Christian who does not have the faith to back it up. That's what James says as well. You say you have faith in God and you have no works to back it up, that faith is dead. It's worthless. It's useless. So there's two dangers here when we, when we ask why should I want this fruit? There's two dangers that we live out most often. We could call it libertine and legalism. We could call it antinomian if you want to use the big word. Legalism, we all know that that's wrong. We all know that it's wrong to say, I can produce my own fruit and that can get me a right standing before God. But think about it in terms of the analogy of the fruit, the vine, the branches. A legalist says, okay, I know I need to have fruit. I know I need to do something. I need to bear something. But I don't like the vine. I'm going to do it myself. And so they, they duct tape their own good works on their own branch that's just kind of free floating outside of somewhere else. They don't want to be attached to Jesus. They want to be able to produce the works themselves. So a legalist in their heart says, I don't want God to be the one producing the fruit. I want to produce it and they don't want to be connected into Jesus. Most people would say the antinomian, which just means against the law, the person who says, I want liberty, I, I don't need to do anything right, I don't need to bear fruit, because I was saved by grace. Most people think the legalist and the antinomian are completely separate. They're at odds, they, they're against each other. They're actually not, though. Because the antinomian says, I want to be able to be in Christ, but not produce any fruit. I want to be able to be in Christ. The legalist says, I don't want to be in Christ. I want to produce my own fruit my own way. The antinomian, the, the person who's against the law, hey, just don't tell me that I have to do things. Don't tell me I have to work. I was saved by grace. That person says, I'm fine to be attached to Jesus, but I don't need to bear fruit. I don't want to bear fruit, but that's impossible. If you are attached to Jesus, you will bear fruit. You have to bear fruit. If you're not bearing fruit, you're not attached to Jesus. So what they're saying is, I want to be attached to Jesus without really being attached to Jesus. So actually, the antinomian and the legalists are two sides of the same coin, which is ultimately, I don't want to be connected to the vine. I don't want to have to do things the way that the vine tells me to do them. I want to do things my way. Whether that's, I don't want to be attached at all and make my own fruit. I don't need you helping my, me make fruit. Or whether that's saying, I'm fine to attach in you, but let everybody else bear the fruit. I don't need to bear the fruit. Jesus says, you'll be cut off and thrown away. Sinclair Ferguson says it this way. It is a fatal pastoral mistake to think of legalism and antinomianism as complete opposites. They are non-identical twins from the same womb. They both come from the same place of saying, I don't want to do things God's way. I don't want him to be the one producing the fruit in me. I don't need that. I can do it myself. But Jesus says, if you don't have fruit that is born through you by Jesus, you cannot prove that you are truly a disciple. Motivation number three, 
Uh, We participate in Trinitarian love if we bear fruit. We participate in Trinitarian love if we bear fruit. So we we glorify the Father. We prove that we're disciples of Jesus. We participate in Trinitarian love, and we'll talk more about that next week. Number four, we live a joyful life. This is a motive for bearing fruit. If you bear fruit, you live a joyful life. I have never met anyone who says, you know what, my aim in life is to be as miserable as I possibly can. Never met that person. Maybe they're out there, but I've never met them. Jesus says, do you want to be happy? Do you want to truly be happy? Do you want to have joy, blessing, abounding in happiness? Bear fruit. My joy will be in you. Your joy will be full. Finally, number five, those who do not bear fruit are burned. This is in verse two, and this is a picture of judgment. We have five clear motivations for why we should want this fruit. We know what the fruit is. We know why we want fruit. God will be glorified. We prove we're disciples. We participate in Trinitarian love. The Father's in us. The, the Son is in us. The love of the Father for the Son is in us. The Holy Spirit's love. It's just this huge, beautiful picture of Trinitarian love. We live a joyful life, and we don't have to fear judgment. The judgment that was rightly due us because of our sin fell on Christ, fell on the vine. He took it all so that we only have life to enjoy, not judgment. But now the question is, how do we get this fruit? How do we get it? We'll talk more about this next week, but this will lead us into next week. The reality is, if we identify the source and we say, okay, the source of a greater fruitfulness is Jesus alone, then we must be attached to Christ. How do you bear this fruit? It's not your own doing. It's Christ doing that in you. And we need to be clear about this because we're going to talk about our role, and many people think our role is to do the good works. No, that's not our role. You know what our role is. The the word's used ten times in this passage, and what is it? What is our role? What's our responsibility? We need to abide. If we abide in Him, fruit happens. So our goal is to abide in Him. Our job is to abide in Him. Our job is not, I need to bear more fruit, I need to grow more fruit. We want that to happen, but the way that we help in making that happen is we can only attach ourselves to the vine. We can't make fruit happen. Jesus is the source. So how do we get the fruit? We attach ourselves to the vine. Notice, this is what happens in, in many churches. People think, okay, I'm not quite attached to the vine, but I'm hanging out in the vineyard. Is that good enough? I'm in church, I'm hearing God's word, I try to do my things, I take like a branch here and take some fruit, duct tape it onto my arm, here we go, I look good, I'm in the vineyard. But that's not the question. The question I'm asking is not, are you hanging out in the vineyard? Have you talked with the vine dresser? Could you identify who the vine is? That's not the question. The question is, are you attached to the vine? Some people think that Christianity is a commitment to a set of doctrinal beliefs just need to believe the right things. I need to know the truth, and I need to believe the truth, and therefore I'm a Christian. Some people think that Christianity is a commitment to a set of ethics. You need to do good things, be moral. But I want to submit to you this morning that Christianity is not first and foremost a theological system to agree with, a doctrinal system to agree with. It's not, first and foremost, a model of morality to impose on yourself or impose on others. You need to live a certain way. It's not a commitment to theological beliefs. It's not a commitment to living a moral, ethical life. 
It is first and foremost a person to embrace. Yes, you need to believe right things. And yes, it will produce a difference in your life, but it's not about those things first and foremost. It's about Christ. It's about loving Him. Christianity is not first and foremost about right doctrine or right ethics. It's not about a great system of things to believe in, though we can have those and enjoy those. No, Christianity is first and foremost about a person to cherish and to treasure, a Savior to believe in, a Redeemer to trust, a Lord to submit to, a God to worship, a Master to obey, a friend to enjoy, a Father to love. It's about a relationship. And so that's why I ask you, are you attached to Jesus? Not do you know about Him, not do you believe the right things about Him, not do you live in accordance to certain aspects in the Bible, but are you attached to Christ? Do you love Him? Do you love Jesus? Without a love for Jesus, your right doctrine and your right ethics lose their value entirely and only become a means of pride. They don't help you at all. They just hurt you. People say, I'm a better Christian than you are because I know more than you do. I'm better than you are because I don't do the things that you do. Or I do the things that you fail to do. I'm better than you are. No, if you're attached to the life of the vine, you will say, I have no life in and of myself. I have nothing to offer. I need life given to me by the vine. So my question to us this morning is, do we have a living, vibrant, organic relationship with Jesus? Are you attached to the vine? Another way we can say this according to the Bible is, do you dwell in Christ and does Christ dwell in you? Think about these verses, Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ, therefore it's no longer I who live, but Jesus lives where? In me. His life is in me. Christ in you is the hope of glory. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, God the Father made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God Most people stop there, in Him. So it's about Jesus being in us, it's about us being in Him. Philippians chapter 3 verse 9, which we read earlier this morning. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the the law, but a righteousness that is found in Him. Do you know how many times the Apostle Paul writes, just the Apostle Paul, how many times in the New Testament does he say, Our position in Christ is being in Him, dwelling in Him. 164 times. That's what it means to be a believer, to be in Christ. It's about attachment and love for a person. It's about intimacy, union. Turn back to John chapter 14, verse 17. We've already seen this, but listen to what Jesus says. This is the spirit of truth. The world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be what? In you. He's not just with you, he's in you. Verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. And after a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live, you will live also. And in that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me, and I in you. 
And then verse 23, Jesus answered and said, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. I've spoken all these things to you while abiding with you, but the Spirit's going to come, and then you can go back to verse 17, and he's going to be in you. I will be with him in you. You will be in me. It's all about that relationship of intimacy. It's no wonder why Ephesians 5 says, Paul says, this, is, this mystery is great, but I'm speaking with regard to marriage in reference to Christ and the church. We are in Christ. Christ is in us. The most intimate of all human relationships, Jesus that's a figure of Jesus looking at his relationship with the church, our relationship with the church being in Christ. Paul says, don't you see the comparison? It's about dwelling in intimacy with somebody else. And if you don't dwell in intimacy with Christ, remember what he said in Matthew 7, oh, you know right theology. You know all the right things to believe, and you do a lot of good things. Lord, Lord, didn't, didn't we cast out all these demons? Didn't we prophesy in your name? We did all these things. And I will say, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. I never knew you. I never had a, an intimate acquaintance with who you were. You weren't attached to me. You were bearing your own fruit, doing your own thing. You had a commitment to a set of doctrinal beliefs. You had a commitment to a set of, of ethical, moral standards. But you weren't attached to me. I don't know you. That's intimate knowledge. That's why Genesis 4 says Adam knew his wife Eve and they had a son. It's intimate knowledge. So the question before us this morning, on the big picture from these verses, is okay, what's the source of fruitfulness? Abundant growth and fruitfulness. Because we want to bear more fruit. What's the source? Jesus would tell us, I am the true vine. Apart from me, you can't do anything. If you abide in me, you'll bear much fruit. He is the source. Jesus, the true vine, is the only source of abundant fruit bearing. And we ask ourselves, okay, so what's the fruit? It's not just living a moral, ethical life. It's the life of the vine being reproduced in the life of the branches. It's Jesus' life being lived out through us. Why do we want it? We saw the five motives. How do we get it? We have to attach ourselves to Christ. Not to Christian things, but to Jesus himself. So this morning, I think the best question that we need to end here with is, are we attached to Christ? Examine yourself, Paul says, to see if you're in the faith. To see if you are in Christ and Christ is in you. Examine yourself to see, what is your greatest treasure? Are you clinging to a set of beliefs or are you clinging to what the beliefs are about, the person and work of Jesus? Are you clinging to Jesus? How do we know that? We will see fruit being born in our lives. And we will embrace the means that God uses to create a greater fruitfulness in us. And what are those means? I think they're clearly told to us in these verses, and we'll look at that next week. God, I pray that you would create in us a desire for this fruit, this fruit, not just looking good on the outside. God, how often we attempt to bear fruit without being connected to the source. We, we work our own 
spiritual generator, as it were. We could do it ourselves. We'll plug it in, we'll set it up, and we can have energy on our own to produce something. These verses are so clear. Apart from me, you can't do anything. God, I pray for those in this room that would hear these words, would hear these verses, and would instantly go to, I need to work harder. God, I pray that they would hear this morning, Jesus has done the work. He succeeded where we have failed. We do need to work harder, but not to bear fruit. We need to work harder to attach ourselves to Him, to love Him. And as we love Him, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So God, I pray that you would release anyone in this room who hears, I just need to try harder. Release them from guilt, from condemnation, and help them to pour their energy not into looking better on the outside, but focusing their attention and energy on abiding in Christ. God, for those in this room that are comfortable with where they are at, with what they believe, with how they live, and they cling to a set of doctrinal beliefs and a set of moral standards as what Christianity is foundationally first and foremost, God, I pray this morning that you would show all of us that's not first and foremost what Christianity is about. Christianity is a relationship with Jesus. And so, Father, I pray that we would live out what the mission of this church is. When we planted this church almost four years ago, our goal was to magnify Christ, to spread a passion for His glory, to make disciples and to shepherd them to love and value Jesus above all things. So make that happen here this morning, that we would attach ourselves to Christ, that we would see that we are in Him, He is in us, and that relationship would be a vibrant one. May we love Him because He first loved us and gave Himself for us. And may He be glorified as we worship Him now, knowing that he has promised to abide with us. And he has made the way for us to abide in him. God, we love you. Be pleased as we examine our own hearts. Teach us through the scriptures. May your spirit confirm and clarify and point us to Jesus, our greatest treasure above all things. We pray it in his name. Amen.